Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. So, hello ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to a special episode of CTO Confessions. The second in the stories from the Amazonian Tribe series. And the objective of this series is to speak to people who have led tech projects within Amazon. The Amazonians and shine a light on their experiences and wisdom on how their time at Amazon has defined their leadership going forward. But before we start, may I mention our sponsors who are supporting this series. Yes, CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with what they need, i.e. purpose-driven development teams for high-performance innovation and productivity. What more could a tech leader want? Please think of IT Labs as a mature and experienced tech leader's favourite off-the-shelf service, tailored exactly for what you need to make your lives easier. And my name is TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, a CTO with a little t. And I'm speaking from the UK, London, the land of hope and glory. And a special guest who will be hosting this series, pushing me out of the way to host it, is Charles Griffith, a highly experienced warrior of a CTO. And he's the ex-tech vice president of transportation when he was at the one and only Amazon. I don't know about you, but I am eager and excited to learn and burn the wisdom he and his guests have to share into my leadership. So welcome, Charles. Welcome to CTO Confession Series on the stories from the Amazonian tribe. Thank you, TC. Appreciate that uh, glorious intro. Uh, very excited to, to be meeting with some of my old friends here. Um, this is going back decades in some cases, and these are a lot of the voices that haven't been heard over the last 20 years. So hopefully people are going to get an insight and some entertainment out of hearing what it was like back in those early times at Amazon uh, long ago. Today we have uh, a very uh, interesting guest, one that I followed uh, since her departure from Amazon years ago. Uh, she's been an inspiration for all of us in the startup community in Seattle. She was one of the uh, early uh, people pushing the boundaries for Seattle. Uh, it's hard to remember what Seattle was like before all of this uh, tech migration has happened uh, and all of the startups that have, have been launched out of Seattle. But uh, at one point, it was it was a very barren plain. Uh, and we're going to hit that as well. But to start off with, um, Kristen, go ahead and introduce yourself, and, and I want to then talk about your uh, journey at Amazon. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad to be here, and it's good to see you again. Good to chat with you again, Charles. Uh, it has been a little while, and it's uh, I, I look forward to a little bit of a trip down memory lane because there were some really good days back there. But um, I'm Kristen Toth. I, um, I'm currently the president and COO at a company called Furnish. I can talk about Furnish in a little while, um, but, uh, you know, I've uh, I spent eight formative years at Amazon. I started off in transportation and operations. That's where we got to know each other. Um, built out some really fun things, including uh, same-day delivery, kind of way back in 2005. Now that sounds like what everybody is trying to do, but it was really weird back then. Um, and then, you know, I think finishing up the eight years um, on the other side of the organization in retail, specifically in digital music and launching what uh, was really the transition between the download one I, one song, one album to being able to access your music from the cloud uh, anywhere that you are and really sort of building out that customer experience that is super prevalent today as well. Um, so I'm super glad to be here um, and I'm excited to to chat. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks for, for attending. Uh, let's, let's go back. You joined very early. Um, for people that don't know, there's actually uh, a tool in Amazon uh, called the old, old Fart Tool, which would measure your tenure versus all of the new people. And I, I'm guessing, you know, either one of us at this point, if we were still there, would be way on the... Uh, your origin end of that spectrum. But you joined in 2003, which was very early in, in the company's um, you know journey. Talk a little bit about what brought you to Amazon at that point and what it was like when you arrived. 
Yeah. I joined straight after grad school and, you know, Jeff Wilkie, who was running worldwide operations at the time came and spoke with us. And it was just so inspirational having come from this really amazing experience at school where I was learning a ton around a lot of really smart people. You sort of, or I was sort of preparing myself to go into an experience that maybe wasn't as intellectually challenging uh, and maybe wasn't, you know, with quite as many or quite a high percentage of really smart people. And when Jeff came and talked to our class, basically what he did was he shopped the website and he narrated all of the logic and the things that were going on behind the scenes to understand sourcing opportunities and delivery capabilities and to come up with you know, the most optimal plan and present back to the customer what their options were for shipping. And this is right after Super Saver shipping launched. So there was a time that Amazon did not have free shipping. Um, and there were still all the other um, shipping options out there. And, you know, Prime was not a thing, all of that. But but he talked through this and narrated kind of the logic on the back end of the shopping experience that resulted in promised delivery dates and the options that you could choose as a customer. And I was like, oh my gosh, this company is actually using the things that we are learning about in school. And then when I went through the interview process, it was, you know, sometimes you get the impression like maybe they put the person that really likes their job on your interview loop, but not everybody's like that. But it was like time after time, the interviews were amazing conversations with incredibly smart people who were trying to think about how to do things differently and better and super energizing and incredibly smart. And it was, I mean, even though it was a long, crazy day, I left feeling so energized. Um, and that's really what got me to move all the way across the country to a place that I didn't really know that many people and join this company that I remember, you know, my parents in the Midwest were like, yeah, but it's a dot com. Don't you remember what happened with all the dot coms just a couple of years ago? Um, and it was it was an amazing ride for eight years, for sure. And let, let's talk a little bit about you. You came on board, obviously, uh, you know, for people that think of Amazon being a juggernaut with all of these FCs and, and now all of these uh, delivery locations, sort centers, et cetera. Back in those days, first of all, on the on the campus itself, it was very small, right? I, I'm guessing you started at uh, PacMed, right? Probably. <laughs> I did. I was at US1, but I mean, US1 or was US pretty US1. early, yeah. So uh, as you arrived, Kristen, you, you came as I think, as you mentioned, the, the campus was expanding from PacMed. We were adding US1 and US2. Anyone who's seen a Seahawks game sees these buildings that are looming over the stadium. Uh, those are those are two twin towers that uh, I believe are owned by Paul Allen. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, we we filled those up fairly quickly. Talk a little bit about what what the uh, team sizes were and what the network was like, because you came into a, a position where obviously you were focused on improving the um, transportation and uh, fulfillment side of what Amazon was doing. And uh, it was it was pretty short staffed at that point, right? It really was. It really was. Uh, I mean, I think I always tell people when I joined Amazon, there were approximately 8,000 people worldwide. And even though I know that to be true, it sort of blows my mind how much we were doing with just 8,000 people. But I, you know, I think about the, the transportation team. I mean, there were handful of developers and a handful of people who were running kind of inbound transportation and outbound transportation. And it worked within this organization um, that was just, you know, a ton of really smart people, but most teams were, you know, four, five, six people at, were big teams. Um, and, and we were just doing a whole, a whole lot, uh, with a, a lot, uh, with a little, right. And then I think that that frugality was really the marching order, um, at the time. And, and it was, you could see that sort of across the board, um, in every team and, and with, uh, how we were operating. Let's talk a bit about your first project as you came in. And what I think is very compelling about what you did and where you started is a lot of what you needed to do to be able to get something accomplished was indirect leadership, right? You did not own the resources. Your programs spanned multiple teams and multiple departments in many cases. 
How did you make it happen? And, and how was that coming, you know, from school? Obviously, for anyone who looks at your resume, they know you had experience at Dell and GM and some of the more traditional manufacturing companies, but this was a different animal. How did you make things happen? Totally. Um, I mean, yeah, I think maybe it was just blind and naive optimism. <laughs> um, I think it was mostly like just believing in what we were trying to do. So this project was, uh, you know, right after we launched Prime, uh, being in transportation, there was a lot of, you know, looking at our fulfillment network, which you had asked about before and I didn't talk about, but there were really just five large fulfillment centers to, to cover the whole United States. And they had these sort of offshoots from those that were additional buildings that housed sort of the, the strange things, right? The things that didn't go on a conveyor very easily, uh, maybe were overflow um, buildings. That, but, but really there were like five main fulfillment centers and they were, relatively close to everybody, but actually close to no big um, uh, population centers. So, you know, when, when we launched Prime and all of a sudden we were going to start seeing everything go really shift from free shipping to much, much more second day and next day um, delivery promises, we had to really rethink how things were going to go. And, and, no, now there's such a different um, experience because Amazon has the scale to be everywhere. But at the time, being frugal and and really thinking about you know how we were going to serve customers, we couldn't build out something that had a massive cost based basis. So, you know, we were thinking about how do we make it easier on us to deliver on this two day promise really, really consistently, and then how do we start thinking about okay, what's next? And for us, it was you know the ultimate goal was same day delivery at the time. Now it's like, you know, two hour delivery, but um, it was just how, how could we reliably and efficiently offer same day delivery? And, you know, I remember kind of getting this paper that was written for a strategic offsite of Jeff's S team, which I'm sure most people know about because it's the, everybody has sort of heard of that now. Um, but I remember it was just kind of a, not even a page long of like, what if we could offer same day delivery? How might we do that? And, you know, I got this paper and we were like, we need somebody to figure this out. And I was like, yeah, great. This sounds awesome. <laughs> um, had no idea what I was getting into, of course. Uh, but I think I just really bought into like, wow, how could we really change the game? And there were a lot of people who were like, why do we need same day delivery? And what are the paradigms for same day delivery today? And it was, you know, like medication, maybe flowers. Um, but there weren't a lot of things that at the time you could get, you know, order this morning and get this afternoon. And so, you know, we were like, well, people even really want this. Um, but we knew that setting up a network that could gracefully do that would also give us many, many more scalable options for these second day and next day orders. Right. Um, and like you said, I mean, it was, it was just me. They handed this paper to me. It was actually printed out. It was a paper and they were like, we think that there's something here. Would you like to go do this? And, you know, there was a lot of like, yes. And then kind of, oh my gosh, what did I just sign up for? Um, and then it was just like, all right, how do you start breaking this down? What are the different ways that we could do this? Um, you know, right. kind of so they, sketching, sketching that out. Sorry, go ahead. So that was that was how the inspiration would come. Sometimes it would come from you as, as your career yeah. went on. And many times it would come from senior leadership that would say, hey, Kristen, take this this big idea, we don't know how to make it happen. Um, we may not even be ready for it to happen. And I wanna talk about one of those stories in a minute that we shared. Totally. Um, but, uh, you know, how did you convert that into execution? And more importantly, with those four and five, you know, developer teams that are being asked to do many different things, uh, how did you make it happen? Once you got the execution in place and you knew what teams needed to do what, how did you convince them to get it done? Because you know, that there were many competing projects happening simultaneously. 
Absolutely. I mean, that was the name of the game. I, my, my least favorite thing was to talk about what was above the line and what was below the line on the, the roadmap. Um, because I was always below the line. I didn't exist when the line was drawn uh, in a lot of cases. Um, I think really it was, you know, first of all, starting with, hey, there are lots of different ways that we could do this. Let's think through, at least at a high level, what the implications might be from a cost perspective, from a complexity perspective, from a reliability perspective from a you know speed to implementation perspective and and I think you know kind of once we got clarity or once I got clarity on this is kind of emerging as the obvious path for us to go then it was going and getting into the details and saying you know here's what we have today these are the systems that we have today um this is how they function um do we need them to do something different for us? Or is there a way that we could sort of massage the process that's going to go around that system to actually work with that system? Uh, and really kind of prioritizing like, what is the minimum number of big changes that we would need to make and in, in what we need these systems to do? And then really goes to sell that vision to the team. Um, and you know, I think it was a lot of like very much going back and forth and working with each of the teams to say, you know, here's here's what I think we need to do or what we need to accomplish. How might we think about different ways of getting there and, you know, kind of thread the needle when it comes to the ability to do what we need to do reliably and the complexity and and sort of heavy lift to get there. So I think it was just getting a lot of people on board with the vision. Um, having Jeff really excited about it definitely helps. Um, and then, you know, really working with the teams to say, how do we minimize the impact here and either, uh, you know, add like a couple things to each project on the list of what's above the line and is going to be done on the roadmap and, and sort of, you know, what do we have to do completely separately, but really getting creative about how to be scrappy, get this thing off the ground, prove that it was something valuable, and then, you know, sort of follow that up with, you know, a legitimate V1 or a legitimate V2. Tell us about how you're, I mean, you came in very, very soon after school, right? Tell us about how your tool set changed based on these interactions and experience, right? You developed a, a set of tools that worked and you learned through experimentation, right? Certainly you got some of this from school, but a lot, you had these very aggressive, very smart people that you're working with. Talk about how your approach changed from that day one that you came in to, you know, those those eight years that you were there. Yeah, uh, you know, that's a really good question. When I think about that, and I think about the difference between sort of that initial couple of years at Amazon and where I'm at today, I sort of wish I could go back because I think that just that being new or newer to sort of Amazon certainly, but even just like driving big initiatives, uh, it was so much collaboration and asking questions and being super curious and open. And I think that that, that served really well. I mean, spending two years learning and really every day, you're like, I just have to get up, learn something today. I think that that was really how I approached like early days at Amazon. And there was so much to learn. And I think you sort of shift that over your career going from like, you know, learning and absorbing and sort of coalescing and, and you know, sometimes leading to sort of, all right, I think I'm like, learn. I think I've got a lot of the data or I've got a lot of the vision and I kind of know where we need to go. How do I organize the people to actually go in this direction? And I think my best days still are when I either reserve kind of my opinion and just ask the team for, you know, how are you thinking about this? What do you think we should do? And that's really been like a, a kind of a development path for me where I was like, all right, you go from like asking questions to telling people. And then if, as you get like to be a really great leader, you go back to asking questions. Right. Right. Awesome. Tell us uh, also, I, unlike myself who were foolishly stayed in the same department, the other, the entire time and did take advantage of all these uh, various uh, other teams that were out there and, and learnings, you moved around and did a number of things during your time. Uh, well, why did you do it? What made you do it? And, you know, what do you think, looking back, uh, were the benefits of doing that? 
especially yeah. as you're starting your career, right? Totally. I um, I went to Amazon because I really got the impression from the people that I met and the conversations that I had that Amazon was hiring athletes that that they really wanted to be able to be very fungible in the organization. And so I liked that because it's like, I don't know what I want to do. Um, I ended up really liking transportation, but I had no idea that that was going to happen. And I probably would have been very happy staying in transportation. The, the path really was much more organic because once we built out the capability for same day deliveries, our website really didn't handle them gracefully. And so it was like, all right, now the website is not making the offers that we need. And I sort of went over to more of the retail side of the business, mainly to talk about how do we make offers to customers and how does that um, how does that change with where the product is, where the customer is, what the product is. And I spent a little bit of time over there. And after that, it was like, oh, great. This is a part of the business. I don't actually know that much about the retail side of things. How do you make an offer to a customer and how do you figure out how to, you know, drive demand, which is just really saying, hey, we have something that the customer wanted, which is great if you can figure that out and and sort of like navigate the customer experience on that side. And I just really wanted to keep learning. And, and for me, I kind of came to Amazon knowing that I should be able to move around a little bit. And that was sort of the culture of the company. And I wasn't going to be just the transportation person or the ops person. Um, and that was important to me at that point in my career. And then I just sort of followed the threads and said, okay, this is the next thing that I feel like is going to make me a better leader, a better um, employee and things that I just need to understand. So it was really great. I mean, the funniest thing was I first went into physical retail um, with movies and TV, like disc-based movies and TV. And then I went to digital music and it was sort of like, wow, this is totally different. Um, there's no inventory, there's no delivery. I mean, there there is, but it's very, very different, obviously. And and so it, the the everything I had spent so much time thinking about was completely flipped on its head or eliminated. And, and thinking about the customer experience, there was such a great uh, a, cust a, a great learning experience for me and and uh, I think really sort of propelled me um, in my learning and my journey super, super fast. Let, let's talk about some of the tools you used, even though the product line or the technology might be different, you would measure success at Amazon, you know, very mathematically, scientifically. Talk a little bit about how, how that worked and, you know, how you would present that back to senior leaders once you accomplished oh. the program. It, totally. whether it was V1 or V2. <laughs> I think it was, you know, everybody has seen the napkin drawing of the, you know, the flywheel. And there are three pillars there that I think really were clear to everybody that worked at Amazon at the time, which was selection, convenience, and value. And no matter where I was, our team was always thinking about what's the next iteration or innovation that we're going to bring to one or all of those pillars. And it was different where you were, who your customers were, where the business that you were working on was in its life cycle, but you were always trying to like innovate on one or more of those pillars. So I think that that was a guiding, um, it was good to always be able to go back to that touchstone and it was a, a great guide, you know, when you were feeling maybe a little bit lost about what to do next. But as you said, I mean, it, it was a, an exploration of what do we know? What, what is the data? How can we tell if we're going in the right direction? And, and that was everything. Um, it was everything from like how you're driving demand, how people are converting, what, uh, what it's costing us, where the exceptions are happening, um, and, and just like relentlessly following those threads. I think the other thing that really happened um, when I got onto the demand side of the business, it became so clear to me. And again, Jeff Wilkie had moved over to retail by the time I got there. And he was really uh, beating the drumbeat of what are the inputs and what are the outputs? So even looking at the data that you were collecting and saying like, these are outputs, these are maybe the business metrics that we might have, but we probably don't directly control those. So let's look at the inputs and say, what's, what are the drivers here? How can we go back to the things that are going to drive toward those outputs and obsess over those inputs? And I think that was super 
helpful, not only at the time when you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm responsible for demand. I can't make people buy. Um, but you start thinking about what does the traffic look like? Where is it coming from? How is it changing? What does the conversion look like once they're on the website? And what are all the things that might drive to that conversion in terms of the experience that they're having, the prices that we have, the, you know, in stock, if you're in a physical category, and then, you know, how do we think about, you know, the costs and the, the sort of margin that we're able to drive that allows us to, um, to keep offering these things to customers. And then how do we think about what's next? Like what is the the sort of, how do you define what your strategic areas are where you might be making a different investment than sort of your core business? And I, that separation of like inputs and outputs, I use that every day. And the other thing is, what do you know? And know what you don't know also to the extent that you can. Like, hey, I know, this is what's happening with traffic. And I know that this is what's changing. I haven't figured out why it's changing yet, but I, you know, at least I know what I need to be looking for and trying to get hints for and clues for and, and like different ways I can iterate around getting some data that might be able to tell me. What, what was interesting that you just mentioned there was there are metrics you know that I'm guessing were part of the proposal, right? We're going to measure perhaps conversion, we're going to measure perhaps cost, right? That was always a concern. Um, but there were also metrics you learned, right? Unexpected metrics that led to new innovation. Can you think in, in some of these shipping programs, what would be some of the metrics that you would learn after the fact, right? The, the obvious ones are are certainly going to be conversion and the, the targets you're hitting for the business. But what were, what were some of those unexpected metrics that may have led to new strategic programs like you just called out? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, when I think about the same day shipping um, and sort of just faster, more scalable shipping, uh, getting closer to customers, I think that, you know, we came in with all those things that you said, and then there was a like, hey, can we figure out whether this is driving incremental business? And here we are with a tiny little fulfillment center as our as our pilot in in Seattle, offering something new that wasn't really amazing in the, you know, as a web experience for customers. And we're like, are we driving <laughs> incremental demand? I have no idea, right? Um, but we started, you know, going and I think using some of the things that we knew about, like, all right, if there is an offer to the customer of same day, next day, how often are they choosing those things? And let's also look at the conversion on those items, even if they're not choosing those things, um, even if they're not choosing those options for themselves, because maybe even the existence of those options are driving, you know, because they don't want to pay for additional delivery fees or something, but maybe they, because they have those options, it's actually doing something to the purchasing and conversion psychology of right. being able to choose. So there were a lot of things that we, you know, we were trying to justify our, our existence and, and whether we should, you know, be rolling this out and incurring more costs and overhead uh, for the, the company. And I think we just started really chipping away at what might be able to tell us, you know, might be a, a flashlight we could shine in these like dark corners. Awesome. I, I want to take us to an experience just like this, where there sometimes we were ahead of the game in proposing something and it, it may or may not have played out. So I'm going to take you back in time here to a time when I was early with the company. It was kind of mid uh, Kristen uh, tenure here, um, probably about 2006 or seven. And you were given the unfortunate uh, program of trying to roll out scheduled delivery for all. I own the scheduled delivery team, and we ended up with a, a program document that was very elegant. It was the traditional six-pager, and we ended up with Jeff up in PacMed. Do you do you faintly recall that ex <laughs> experience? Faintly recall that. Yes, absolutely. Can you kind of take people through, whether it's that experience or not, what it was like doing one of those Jeff Bezos reviews and what it was like when, when you'd go into the room with him and he would uh, get one of those six pagers, how, how you had to actually prepare just for that process? Well, gosh, this could be an entire podcast. <laughs> um, I was fortunate to really have great meetings, except for one, 
that very much sticks out. Um, pretty great meetings when we were presenting to Jeff, um, and it, it helps to work on things that are kind of innovative and pushing the envelope because he can get really excited about them. But I was also at Amazon when we went from presenting things to writing documents. And those first couple S-Team or Bezos meetings with documents were, I mean, they had to be amongst the most nerve wracking times I had experienced up to that point. Uh, because you spent so much time getting the data together and the story and writing this document and trying to refine it to make it clearer and clearer. And so many people were involved. And then, you know, the moment of truth comes, you walk in, pass out these documents and sit in silence for 20 minutes or so while you watch him circle things. And and you're just like, what is he thinking? What's going on? It was I mean, and what I learned from this experience is don't read your own document because you will always find a typo and sit there for that 20 minutes of silence, completely beating yourself up. But um, I think what was so amazing about doing that with Jeff was how quickly he could assimilate information and look at the data that was presented and was the backbone of that presentation in the document. And just assimilate it and understand it and ask incredibly insightful questions about it and put that into the bigger context and to to share with the team in the room what how he was thinking about that um you know here we were we'd been you know heads down looking at it for weeks and he would ask the question that you were like yeah that's the question how did you do that it was just amazing um, yes, that, that ability to convert <laughs> and, and ask a question, even though you had 200 people looking at a document, he'd ask the question that nobody remembered to ask. And oh. I think in, in this particular review, when we did this, you know, it was a very small audience. I, I, I kind of, in my mind, it goes back and it's you and I in that room with Jeff and nobody else. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I remember he got through this document and, and he came and and he didn't ask a question. He actually made a statement and it was the worst statement for both of us. He basically came back with scheduled delivery. I don't think there's a use case for scheduled delivery at all. <laughs> so sometimes he would drive as you look back now, right? It's impossible yeah. to think that way at the time because you're so focused on, on uh, you know, accomplishing your job, but it was a way of driving the discussion forward by being a contrarian and I think in that particular case, you know, you're stymied, right? How are you going to come back and, and justify something that he says he doesn't believe in? And in this particular case, I, I think, you know, there was a whole separate conversation going on about a, a, a different business called Release State Delivery, where we were trying to figure out how to beat, um, you know, the, the GameStops of the world and the, uh, the various booksellers that were getting inventory before us and selling all of this inventory before we got a shot at it. And uh, in that particular case, uh, we had a whole messy program for release date delivery. And I had wanted scheduled delivery to be that solution, uh, but was stymied like you uh, at being able to influence those leaders. And I said, well, what about release date delivery? And he said, that's one. And so it was, <laughs> it was amazing, yeah, as you said, your wins are very short on that board, right? And you remember those those minor wins, but I, I just remember, you know, from eminent failure to at least some saving grace. And I can remember the uh, bruises as well. I try to forget them, but they come back at night in, in nightmares. Um, <laughs> they so do. But uh, let's let's talk a bit about as you decided to to leave Amazon and you went into a a, a world that was very different. I mean. For anyone who doesn't know in Seattle, you know, there were very limited numbers of successful startups. I, I can remember a few of them like Zillow that would recruit uh, on, on the doorstep of uh, US 1 and 2 and, and give us some pause, but there weren't many. Uh, how did you make that decision to go out and, and talk about some of the companies you started with and, and how you, you rose to where you are today? Sure. I mean, I think what ended up happening is after we launched the the digital music experience, uh, you know, like accessing your music from the cloud, um, which now we would just call streaming. <laughs> um, I was starting to look, like take a look around and say, okay, I love building things. 
it's super uncomfortable and I'm obviously crazy for it, but that's when I'm most, most happy when we don't know how we're going to get there and we have to just problem solve and bring lots of people around and all the things that we've been talking about. And I just realized that that's what I really loved to do. And it wasn't that Amazon didn't have a lot of opportunities to do that, but we were hitting a point where a lot of the opportunities were in scaling what already existed. And while I knew I would learn a ton and I could have a great career and it would be amazing, I was still hungry to build things. And it's sort of a natural sort of transition to a startup because there's nothing to do but build things. There's nothing. You have to build it all, um, which is overwhelming in and of itself. Um, but I think it, it was more kismet than me deciding like, yes, now is the time for me to go to a startup. It was really the right time of an opportunity coming my way that um, that I could assess and, and really think compared to other opportunities that were coming my way within Amazon. So the first place I went after Amazon was Zulily. And I remember telling people when I announced that I was leaving, that I was going to Zulily and they were all like, what? That you're going to who? Um, and nobody had heard of it. I mean, just nobody. Um, and what it was, you know, it, it, it's changed a little bit, but at the time it was really this like backwards e-commerce experience where we would sell stuff and then we would go get it. Um, and we were doing it mainly to minimize inventory risk and, and really sort of work on very exciting, like, uh, shopping experience where there was limited amount of time, limited amount of inventory and, uh, uh you know, really great deals that flash sale site. And I was just like, this is super intriguing. And it was really kind of all the rage at the time with guilt group and a number of the others that had been on, on, um, on the radar, but this was really focused on kids and families. And, uh, you know, it, uh, I think what really made me make the jump was here's a way that I can take the training wheels off. Yes, I've been building within Amazon. Yes, it's been tough, but like, truthfully, I, I don't have to go out and get funding. I don't have to figure out everything myself. Like I can look around at all these like amazing smart people and I have a foundation to sort of build off of and that's great. So can I really take the training wheels off, so to speak? Um, and that was like kind of the, the challenge I gave to myself. I think the other thing that really happened was Daryl and Mark who started the company, they were experienced executive experienced founders. I, I mean, I didn't go to some like <laughs> first time, you know, straight out of school sort of founder. It was like, okay, I feel like this is de-risked to a certain extent, even though we still have to build this whole thing. Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was a rocket ship. I mean, we IPO'd within five years of the beginning of the company and we were building everything from scratch. And it was a lot of a lot of work, um, a lot of fun though. And um, just, you know, it really kind of proved that like, yes, this is where I am most happy is building, innovating, building the team that's going to do it, building the team that's going to run it, um, you know, helping people through that like massive and constant change process. Um, just it's so invigorating and exciting. So I was there kind of through the, yeah. Now, now going going from that experience where you say it's a de-risked uh, startup, which I would say, you know, you became one of those principal leaders, right? It was a, a huge change in, in you know, kind of um, your role and, and your influence. But take us now to one of the ones like Dolly or, you know, even Furnish where, you know, now it's 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 definitely not one of those de-risked. It's on it's on Kristen's shoulders to make these things succeed. And how does that change? And how does some people always ask? You know, how do you get those relationships with uh, venture capitalists and, and get that trust? Again, to me, it's kind of a an overlap with what you've done throughout your career, right? You're you're selling a vision and then you're executing on it as much as the as much as the execution is about problem solving. It's about the buy-in on the front end. But but tell us how it how it happened. Yeah, you're. I mean, you're so right. So you know, de-risk startup sounds funny because it wasn't at all de-risked, but it felt 
like I could go and I wasn't going to have to know everything. And, and certainly at Code Fellows, it was much earlier. We didn't even really have, you know, product market fit. We thought we had something. Um, same thing, Dolly had some product market fit in Chicago, but we hadn't sort of gone anywhere else and we hadn't tried to scale anything. And then at Furnish, um, you know, again, we had some really good clues that people wanted it, but it's a really complex business, both on the customer experience side, because it has very much of a um, subscription recurring kind of payment and and lots of flexibility so you can swap things out so you're when you just think about the website and what that needs to do and what the customer experience needs to look like it's really complex same thing on the back end since it's sort of rental at its core we're sending things out and we're bringing them back which most e-commerce players do not want to ever see those things again once they go out the door and we want to and need to in order to make the economics work and so um it, you know i think that there is there's so much to build and so much complexity especially in these early days and it goes back to even the things that we talked about earlier with same day delivery where you have to kind of create the vision. You have to kind of have the story. And that happens every day at, uh, you know, when you're working with your team where you're trying to tell the story and why it's important and how exciting it's going to be and how we're going to get there and how that person plays into it all the way to your board and investors who, you know, want to know, okay, well, that's great. I'm sure you'll figure everything out today, but you know, why is this a great business? And so you're constantly shifting contexts and and levels and timelines, uh, but it all comes back to like, what is the story? What is the vision? How do you stay humble and learn, but still be able to like take that information and sort of build it into, you know, what your strategy is, what your vision is, how you're telling that story. Um, but it's a lot of just, you know, storytelling and having that vision and being open and flexible to learning new things and and following those threads and what the data tells you or what your your sort of processes tell you uh, works and doesn't work and where the opportunities are and, and constantly iterating on that. Awesome. Two more questions. First one, what do you feel was your greatest Amazon accomplishment? I do go back to the same day delivery thing because, you know, <laughs> there was nobody else on the team. <laughs> I was really driving that. I felt like I was pushing an enormous boulder uphill. Um, and the fact that we could not only get that done um, at all, but that we could build out something that was really compelling and, you know, has stuck around and, you know, been a part of Amazon so much since then. And, and I just, I'm super proud about that. Not just because I think it was great for customers and great for the company, but just knowing how hard it was to get there. Um, and that was amazing. And I think that, you know, digital music, the, the last project that we worked on too, that, you know, Amazon music was just, it was very, very similar. We were like, we have this great Amazon Web Services infrastructure, like we could be using it. And yet the world is not totally ready for this. We don't know what the legal ramifications of certain things are going to be. And we don't necessarily know how to build. And I mean, I just remember one time when we were doing a project review with Jeff and saying like, well, when we launch, we're only going to be able to launch on like Chrome and, uh, uh, I mean, I can't even really remember all the, the browsers there, but we're not going to do Safari. We're not going to, because Safari was so low usage at the time. And Jeff was like, it's a web browser. It's HTML. Like, how is it different? And I was like, I would have said the same thing a few years ago. But when you start getting into what's the operating system and the firewall and the version of the operating system and the actual version of the browser and the browser itself, like, all things are not even here. Um, I can't even really remember why I was talking about that, but oh yeah, the complexity of doing that. And I think when you know from the inside that it was incredibly not straightforward and you navigated all of those roadblocks that came up, it's just so fulfilling. And you know, every time I tell, and I won't say her name, um, to play music, I'm, I get all excited because I'm like, this would not be there without our team. Absolutely. As Amazonians, um, you know, we, we love successes, but we learn more from failures. What was your greatest failure and what, what changed about how you do things from that failure? 
Oh gosh. It's so hard to like choose a failure because it just happened every day. Right. You're like, Oh, that didn't work. (laughs) Um, and I think the thing, the great thing about working at Amazon and having that experience is you don't really think about things as failures. I mean, there are some that I'm sure people think about, but the being humble and, you know, and and also just that the culture really de-risked failure so that we could have these like amazing innovations that actually could come through and people would actually take on those projects. I just think was part of the the culture. So I felt like I failed every single day. Um, you're like, oh, wow, that was, yeah, I had bad data. I didn't know what I, you know, we didn't look at that other data that, you know, now seems so obvious. Um, I mean, I remember going into Amazon Music and the first kind of things that we were doing were catch up um, work to iTunes. And it was like, well, you know, yes, you can download a song, you can download an album, but you, you know, now you can't gift it to somebody else and you can't, uh, we couldn't do all these different things that were just iTunes had built over, you know, six or seven years that they had the, the sort of, um, head start on us. And there was something that all of the record companies were really pushing and it was, you know, enhanced content where you get a a special file that not only had the, the item in it, but also had a video or, and, and it was like, do customers really want this? I don't know, but everybody's telling us that we should do it. Uh, you know, from the outside and it had convinced the whole team and I was new to the team and I was like, sure, let's prioritize that because, you know, I kind of drove the product roadmap. I mean, nobody wanted it. It was such a colossal waste of time. And I think that that was, I mean, it was like at the time I knew it was going against all that you learn at Amazon, which is really go understand why this is good for the customer and why they're really going to want to do it. Don't listen to the suppliers or the competitors really go back to the customer. So that was a lesson that, you know, you get taught over and over again, sometimes in a really positive way. And in this case, a less positive way. (laughs) Last question. There are certainly going to be a lot of people that are going to listen to this and say, you know, I want Kristen's career. Now, I'll tell them right now, they're not going to start with uh, Kristen's abilities, but let's assume, let's assume we all start equal. What would you advise somebody who's starting out today to do to ultimately get to the point where they can, you know, have this kind of C-level influence on, on so many different companies as you've done? Yeah, I think that comes down to a couple of different things. The first one is just being humble, being curious, and learning as much as you possibly can, even if you're like, wow, I probably will never use this, but really kind of going out and and being as wide and as deep as you can get and, and taking all those opportunities that you have to even challenge what you think you know. So I think that that's it. And then the second thing, I actually wrote a chapter in a book called Women in Tech. And the the assignment was just talk about some key pivotal moments in your career that really you think in retrospect made sense. And there was a theme to every one of those, which was, I have no idea how I'm going to do that, but it sounds like it's super exciting. So I'm gonna go try, right? And I think that even though I didn't grow up in a culture or a place where startups and risk were really valued, as I look back on it, those were the things that were most meaningful in my career. It accelerated the learning. It gave me a much better understanding of myself and what I could do and what I still needed to learn and get better at. Um, and so I, yeah, it's really about like learning and then taking those risks and, um, you know, being humble and, and excited about, you know, the opportunity and not really worrying about exactly how you're going to do it at all times. Awesome. Well, I, w- I want to thank you as someone in Seattle that has benefited from the foundation you laid in this startup community, certainly uh, to get um, Silicon Valley uh, investors to buy in that there was a, you know, something to be done in Seattle. Uh, it took pioneers like yourself uh, to, to lay that foundation. So thank you. And thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been great to see you and chat. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Kristen. Well, that discussion didn't disappoint, eh? And Charles did an excellent job. I think my job's in danger somehow. 
I'll have to keep an eye on that one. Only kidding, Charles. Anyway, he and Kristen opened up an enlightening peephole into a world they lived in. Seriously, what a ride it must have been. And as Kristen said, achieving so much with so little. Small teams of four to five, full of smart people, delivering a lot. And they delivered some impressive results based on the business outcomes that we still use today, i.e. Amazon's astronomical success. So what were your key takeaways? I'm going to share mine right now. My first key takeaway is being an organisational athlete, as Christine said, and it really helped her growth and career. I can just see her now running around, solving those kinks in the customer experience wherever they showed up. This idea of customer centricity really resonated with me. Being a business agilist, customer centricity is the order of all working days. And I can see the relentless drive to file down that customer experience to a smooth surface for any part of the customer interaction. So be relentless in your customer centricity. My second key takeaway was around measuring success and how at Amazon it was mathematical and scientific. I would really like to have dug down deeper into this because I think this is a topic that many leaders and organisations look at and have varied levels of success. My third key takeaway is around the famous Amazon flywheel napkin sketch and it being the home to return to when one was lost on what to do next. Always trying to create that next iteration of innovation and improvement on one of the pillars within that diagram. I love the simplicity of this and the ability to return to it when lost. A kind of visual principle for the organisation to always return to. My fourth and final key takeaway is around the concept of inputs and outputs that Christine described. Rather than just focusing on outputs, the data that was being collected to guide the decision making, see the inputs as an opportunity to affect the outputs, the things in one's sphere of influence. I love how Christine explained the obsessing over these inputs to see how they could become the precursors to the desired outcomes. So there were loads more takeaways and I've only got a limited time to jam them into this allotted time. But I will mention the olfart tool. That was an interesting and very amusing measure. It must have been great to be high on that score, being one of those mystical elders of the organisation when it all started. So thank you, Charles, and thank you, Christian, for a great conversation. May the Amazonian force remain strong in you both. And finally... Remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Labs services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.